So I'm just, I'm really happy to see so many people. And part of the reason why I'm happy to see so many people is because this series that we're embarking on tonight of the studying the foundations of mindfulness is, is hardcore. And it's not as if I wouldn't expect you guys to be up for hardcore. I totally am. But the, I'm just delighted to see how many people are interested in coming and, and actually getting the essential teachings of what the Buddha was interested in talking about. So this this series is uh, beginning to open up and unravel uh, a sutta that gives instructions on how to practice. And it's my intention to use these next four um, talks at the Dharma Punks in Denver to uh, use the sutta that the Buddha delivered as a framework for discussing the four foundations of mindfulness and to give a context uh, on the sutta so that the sutta becomes more readable, um, to actually read the sutta, and to give instructions on how to work with the specific practices. So on the back, behind Jeff, are some sheets. And one of the sheets is a, a list that has all the dates and of the meetings and the conference calls in between the meetings so that people can call in and we can talk more specifically about how to practice with stuff and what's arising for you in your practice. So there's conference call numbers and dates for those conference call numbers. Now, because I had been um, intending to start this series last month but got delayed because of the fire, we've got one a month and then one in two weeks. So look at the calendar dates because it's irregular because of other teaching commitments that I had. Yeah? And um, the other thing that I wanted to mention is is that that sheet has the names of these books here. This book, uh, Venerable Analayo, is a uh, contemporary scholar. He's a monk. I don't know how many years he's been a monk. Um, he wrote this as a PhD thesis, and this whole book is his uh, dissertation on this sutta. And it is fabulous. It is absolutely fabulous. And the bottom of the resource list on that piece of paper is a a link to Joseph Goldstein's talks. And I think he gave 36 talks. Almost 50. 50? Using this book as a reference point talking about the Satipatthana Sutta. Okay. The Heart of the Buddhist Meditation is also a classic book that is a description of this sutta. And The Way of Mindfulness, again, is a classic and a little bit more difficult to read, but also very worthwhile um, reference on the sutta. Um, The reason why there's a lot of references in other materials is because this is like handing out a gold key to a treasure trove that has riches in it that are just unbelievable. 
And my intention with presenting the sutta is to take the hardness out of the hardcore so that we just come into direct contact with the essential teachings and actually make use of it in a way that's totally applicable in our own lives. Okay? But I wanted to let you know of some of these other resources in case um, there's a real strong resonance and an interest to take the study deeper and to go more into it. So, this sutta that we're going to talk about tonight, the Satipatthana Sutta, or the English translation is the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, is regarded pretty universally as one of the single most important suttas the Buddha delivered. So, I don't know how much of you are focused on, you know, how cool the Buddha was, but the Buddha was pretty cool, all right? And a pretty cool teacher gives a lot of teachings, and so there would be a lot of really cool things that he said. But if there are many people who focus and say that of all of the things that he said, this one particular thing is like stands out head and shoulders above the rest, as being a clear, concise, comprehensive guide of direct instructions, then whether or not you are a scholar type or even a Buddhist type, it would be worth saying, wow, you know, there's something here that actually is worth listening to, it's worth paying attention to. And the reason why this sutta is flagged that way by so many scholars is because within it is the instructions for the for a direct way to attain um, the goal, and the goal is a complete liberation from all forms of suffering. So now a lot of us come to meditation because we want to feel a little bit better, or because we want to sleep better at night, or because we're having some difficulties in our family life or our personal life, or we want to get a handle on one thing or another. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with having any of these motivations. But what this does is it puts it into a larger perspective where those motivations are fine, but there's also another possibility. And this other possibility is that it's actually designed to take one into a radical transformation so that there is no more suffering, not just less suffering. That is the point and the purpose of this practice. That is where it can culminate to. So I'm going to be reading from this book, which is the Middle Length Discourses, and this one has been translated by... um, Bhikkhu Nyanamoli and Bhikkhu Bodhi. Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, lives in in, in New York. He's a phenomenal scholar. And there is a longer version of the sutta in the Diga Nikaya, and that is exactly the same except for the section on the Four Noble Truths is much, much, much longer. And uh, we will go into that, what the Four Noble Truths are in the fourth class series about why that's important and why that's useful. The structure of the sutta is basically very simple. And what it's talking about is these four foundations of mindfulness consist of one, contemplating the body, two, contemplating feeling, three, contemplating the objects that arise in our mind, 
and four, contemplating the objects that arise in our mind in groupings of Dhamma. So when we're talking about the contemplation of the body, in that there are 14 specific exercises that are delineated in how we can bring attention to the body. So the first one is a contemplation of breathing. The second one is paying attention to our four classical postures. The third one is bringing full awareness to everything we do, even the stuff that's outside of meditation. The fourth one is contemplating the different parts of our body and seeing its actual nature. The fifth is looking at things in terms of elements. And the sixth to the fourteenth are specific meditations on the decomposition of the body after we die. And these comprise the 14 different specific exercises around contemplating the body. When we look at contemplating feeling, we're not talking about contemplating emotions in the way that we are normally understand the word feeling. This word feeling in the Buddhist language has very, very specific meaning, and it means the contemplation of the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And as we come to that in our next class, it's really powerful to be able to deconstruct the whole kind of spin that we make on things into pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. You know? There's three baskets that things can basically be put into all of our life experience. And that takes enormous complexity and reduces it to phenomenal simplicity. And that's really helpful because when we do that, it takes some of the sticky tape out of the equation. It begins to let us help see what's actually happening and where are we getting our rub. The third one The third foundation of mindfulness, of contemplating objects of mind, is having to do with our desires and our fears and our doubts and our memories and our thoughts and our perceptions and all of our associations and all of that and how to work with all of that. And then the fourth one is to contemplate all of what is arising in terms of five basic groupings. And one grouping is around hindrances, anger, desire, doubt, restlessness, sloth. The second one is to contemplate it in terms of aggregates, in terms of the composite way in which we experience things. The third one is to to relate it in terms of our sense bases, eye contact, sound, touch, thought, taste, smell. The fourth one is around the factors of enlightenment. And the fifth one is around the noble truths, these four (coughs) fundamental truths that are uh, timeless and are ones that we can realize. And so what we are going to do in these next four classes is go through this whole thing. And what I'm hoping to do in the conference calls is to go into more depth with the actual application and practice of how do you actually work with this in our daily life. So coming back to the sutta. 
So the place where this took place in Kamasadama is what is the recent scholars have found to be is close to Delhi. And when they're talking about the direct path, it's not um, only um, the translation can be said that it's it, that it's that it's a path that gives rise to only one result. Now, there are other people who translate this as an exclusive path. And so then you have the way in which people can use the translation to come up with fundamental ideas about how to use meditation in order to liberate. Or you can use the translation or the understanding of this as a way of saying that if you practice this way, it will lead to only one result. So let me read a little bit and then go into more of the meanings of some of this word, of this. So all of the suttas begin with, thus I have heard. And the reason why is because this was an oral tradition for at least 500 years after the Buddha died, before anything was put down into writing. So it was a way of giving some context that this stuff was passed on generation after generation by people memorizing the, the, the text and then passing it on. It starts with this language, thus I have heard. So thus I have heard on one occasion the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country at the town of Kuru's called Kamasadama. And there he addressed the bhikkhus thus. Bhikkhus, venerable sir, they replied. And the Blessed One said this, Bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and limitation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So when we're talking about Satipatthana, the foundations of mindfulness, this has many layers of meaning. On one hand, it means memory attentiveness directed to the present And then it also is the kind of contemporary makeshift word which we use as mindfulness. So the reason why Pali scholars get so particular about learning Pali is because the Pali language has nuances in it that totally get dropped when it gets translated into English. And so they love the original language because what gets conveyed has much more precise instruction then the translations are able to navigate. Sati means memory, attentiveness, directed to the present tense, and that's the makeshift rendering of mindfulness. And patana means setting up or establishing or domains of foundation. So my name, Tana Santi, comes from the patana, its foundation. So Tana Santi is foundation of peace, which comes from the same kind of root, the foundations of mindfulness. This could either be understood as four ways of setting up mindfulness or as four objective domains of mindfulness. It's a subtle but distinct difference. Yeah. So what are the four? And so in this language, oftentimes the Buddha is speaking to bhikkhus. And in this context, what's really helpful to understand is is that bhikkhu does not just mean monk, because in this room there is not a single monk, but it means anyone who endeavors to do the practice. So when you hear this word, just know that that is its intended meaning. Okay? 
So the the here a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as the body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetous and grief for the world. He abides contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetous and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind as mind, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetous and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetous and grief for the world. So in this this phrase of contemplating body and body is repeated over and over and over again. And what this means as is precisely determining the object of meditation. So we're isolating it from the other objects like our feelings or ideas or our emotions concerning it. So when we're bringing attention to the body, we are wanting to focus on the physical aspect of the body directly rather than our ideas or our feelings about it. And that is a really helpful distinction because it helps create a razor edge which allows us to see what is actually happening. In addition, the body should be contemplated simply as a body rather than as the perception of a woman or as a man or as a living being or anything like that. So in the same way, all of our associations with the body, we're wanting to drop so that we can come back to the direct experience of body itself. Covetous and grief is a shorthand way or a poetic way of standing for one has to give up sensual desire and ill will, which are the principal hindrances that make it impossible for the mind to open and see things clearly for what they are. So part of what we have to do in navigating this path is come to terms with these things as they arise and learn to deal with them in a way where there is much more capacity to see clearly. And that is a whole conversation in itself. In fact, that's a whole retreat in itself. You know, just dealing with all this stuff and how it arises and developing skillful ways of working with it. So when we begin this whole chapter, this first chapter of mindfulness of breathing, so how does one abide contemplating body as body? Here a bhikkhu has gone to the forest or to the root of the tree or to an empty hut and sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, he sets his body erect and establishes mindfulness in front of him. Ever mindful he breathes in and mindful he breathes out. So again, you know, in this context, the language was in the masculine. And what I may do is intersperse masculine and feminine and gender neutral because we're not all masculine or we're masculine some of the time. (laughs) We're all masculine some of the time. (laughs) So when we're looking at this, I also find it really helpful to understand the context in which this is spoken and the people to whom this is spoken to. And when I have been to Asia, one of the things that I noticed as a real strong characteristic is is that it was really difficult for people in Asia to get stressed out. It's like they didn't know how to do that, you know. 
their society and the way they were networked was different than ours is, you know? So in a contemporary context, I would say that what would be really helpful in addition to sit at the root of the tree is to relax, okay? So what I have learned how to do is to tie in our contemporary context into the traditional teachings in order that what we are doing in ourselves is actually applicable. Now, gone to the forest, to the root of the tree, or to an empty hut. There's nothing particularly magical about any of these places except for the fact that we're not in the middle of a chaos, that there's a way to actually focus on what's happening without being pulled into ten different directions by all kinds of conflicting needs. And so when we are able to do that wherever we are, sit without distracted attention, without being pulled by conflicting needs, then that is really helpful. I personally have a real love for sitting in nature. So today, just before coming here, I was at the Innovation Pavilion giving a seminar for the entrepreneurs, and I had a break. And this is in the middle of South Denver. This is the kind of industrial you know, business complex. They don't have forests, but they have trees around the parking lot. So I found two trees around the parking lot, and I made a nest, and I lie down between these two trees, and it was like, oh, Thank goodness. You know, the air is fresh. The ground holds you. There isn't smells from the carpet coming through. You know, for me, I have a much more feeling of being able to relax in nature than I do to relax in a building. Yeah. And so even in Denver, in a car parking lot, I can find a small little patch and go and get nourished by it. And so we can learn how to do what supports our mind and body relaxing so that we can actually allow our attention to come into coherence. So there's an emphasis on folding legs crosswise, but you notice it doesn't actually say go sit in a lotus posture. So lotus posture is a kind of evolution that has come partly through the yogic tradition and the value of what happens when we're sitting that way, but that's not the Buddha's instructions. And so what we need to understand is what are the adaptations that came after and what are the instructions that were given at the time. Not that the adaptations or the commentaries that came after are not helpful, but that it's different to know what was actually given and what came later then we get to decide what actually works for us. I think the important part of this is that the body is erect. But again, I would couple that with the elongation of the spine with a deep sense of relaxation. Because we hear that word and immediately there's an extra tension in wanting to make an effort that actually counterbalances this other thing which is really, really important which is that the only way in which this actually unfolds properly is if it's coming from a deep place of relaxation. So then it goes through the meditation. I breathe in long or again, I breathe out or I breathe in short. I I understand I'm breathing in short or I understand I breathe out short. So it's very specific of an in-breath and an out-breath and the quality of it. And then one understands this breathing in the whole body or I breathe out experiencing the whole body. He trains oneself, I shall breathe in tranquilizing the body formations, or he trains himself thus, I shall breathe out tranquilizing the body formations. So again, tranquilizing in and out. Just as a skilled turner or his apprentice when making a long turn understands I'm making a long turn, or when making a short turn understands I make a short turn, 
So, too, breathing in long, a bhikkhu understands I breathe in long, and he trains himself thus, I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the bodily formations. And then it goes through a refrain. In this way, he abides contemplating the body as the body internally, or contemplates the body as the body externally, or he abides contemplating the body as a body both internally and externally. So in this case, what one is actually referring to is is that when one is contemplating one's own body, or sometimes when one is meditating, one is also aware of the external circumstances around one, or sometimes one is oscillating attention internally and outside between what is happening with oneself and what is happening around. So this is the breath instructions. And then it goes on to the four postures. And there are the four postures of standing, walking, sitting, and lying down. And these four postures are the classical postures which are encouraged in meditation. Then full awareness. Someone who is meditating acts in full awareness when going forward and returning. Acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away when flexing and extending his or her limbs, when wearing robes and carrying bowl, when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, when defecating and urinating, when waking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. And so in this one, we automatically see that the shrine is not the sacred place of practicing. The sacred place of practicing it is whatever is happening in the present moment and to bring one's attention fully into that. And so sometimes people have zones where they don't think meditation is supposed to go. And it's really interesting to find out for oneself, where are those zones? And so if the toilet is a zone where your meditation is not supposed to go, check it out. Look at what's happening. And if you think falling asleep is not the place where you're supposed to be mindful, check it out. Look at what's happening. And so what this is saying is is that in order to actually free oneself, meditation needs to move from being compartmentalized into a small, isolated thing that we do for 30 minutes a day into something actually that moves into the whole of our life. Then it looks at the body parts. So here, one reviews the same body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the hair, bounded by skin and full of many kinds of impurity. And then it goes through body parts. In this body, there are head hairs and body hairs and nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinew, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, liver, heart, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestines, small intestines, the contents of the stomach, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, sweat, Fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, and urine. I love the translation of snot. And so it's looking at everything that is actually making up one of our bodies. And there's a whole practice of working with the 32 parts. But what is fascinating for me in this practice is is, is that they don't say that this whole thing is gross. They say just look at it. Be aware of what is here. And the next examples of that begins to really illuminate. Because this practice, which is often referred to as a suba, or the unattractive, 
also means actually refers to just looking at it for the reality of what it is. Okay? Just as there were a bag with an opening at both ends full of many sorts of grains, such as hill rice and red rice and beans and peas and millet and white rice, someone with good eyes were to open it and revere it. This is hill rice and red rice and beans and peas and millet, and this is white rice. So in this way, a person is not saying this is disgusting. They're not making a value judgment on what they're seeing. They're just willing to distinguish the different parts and know them for what they are. Now, this is really important, particularly in our contemporary society where we oscillate back and forth between attachment and worshipping and aversion and hatred. And we do that with our bodies and we do that with ourselves. Okay, So the point of this practice is to come into a healthy relationship of detachment. It is not intended to encourage hatred. And if our minds are moving into that, then we have to come back into the neutral way of relating to this, which is that it's just like this and like this and like this and like this. That's what it's about to to do, is to release our grasping of our body as who we are, as something that is going to be giving us lasting happiness, and to begin to get a handle of what is this thing made out of, you know? What does it look like? How does it work? Again, there's the refrain, contemplating the body as body internally and externally and both internally and externally. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that, too, is how one abides contemplating body as body. So this practice of learning how to relate to our body for what it actually is brings about a kind of independence, not attached to anything in the world when we see our body for what it actually is when we actually can understand its impermanent nature when we know with certainty that our body is going to die then it helps release the illusion otherwise that we live with that supports the kind of habits that we get involved with to try and keep the illusion alive So when we're looking at elements, we're looking at the body as a body composed of earth element, water element, fire element, and air element. So our bones, our flesh, these are organs. These are all aspects of the earth element. Our tears, our blood, our synovial fluid, our urine, this is all aspects of the water element. The movement of our breath, this is and the movement in our body, this is all an aspect of the air element. The fire, our capacity to digest food, our heat, our coolness is all an aspect of the fire element. The space inside is something that's part of the space element. And so, you know, this again, when we look at it in terms of elements, it takes our constructed sense of self and completely shifts it. 
because we don't normally think of ourselves as earth, air, fire, and water. We think of ourselves as I and me here, solid and separate from everybody else. But that perception, I and me here, separate from solid and solid and separate from everybody else, is the precise illusion that causes the suffering that we have to navigate in the world. And so we're trying to look and see, well, what is actually here? What's real? And then the next part has to do with the charnel ground contemplations. And I have always been really scared to do this in any kind of systematic way because I was afraid people were going to have nightmares. <laughs> so I've always kind of politely kind of skipped over it, never really attended to it. And not, you know, I thought, well, I don't know that it's going to be okay. I think people are going to be too scared. And then I thought, well, you know, let's try a little bit and see how it goes. Okay. What happens when we actually apply attention to the reality of our own death and really focus on that? And when we focus on it in a way where we look at the specific ways that bodies decompose and pay really careful attention to that and recognize that our body is not in any way different from these things that we can see in somebody else who has died. It is very, very powerful. So the way I've got it scheduled with the conference calls is that the first one is going to be on... I don't have a sheet up here with me. Maybe I do. The August 8th conference call is going to be about breath and full awareness. And the August 22nd conference call is going to be about parts of the body and contemplation of death. And so what I'd like to happen for these these is, is, is that people are specifically working with the practices that are given in the sutta relevant to these particular uh, contemplations, these exercises. Yeah. And all of this is, is on the back behind Jeff on a piece of paper that's written down so that you can follow that if you want to. When we're looking at the contemplation of, of uh, the charnel grounds contemplation, the nine different charnel ground contemplations go through the decomposition of the body into different ways of looking at it and very graphic. And so the first one is um, w- looking at a body bloated and livid and oozing. The second one as being devoured by different animals. The third one is a skeleton with flesh and blood held together with just uh, ligaments. And then watching this decompose further until there is just disconnected bones scattered all around. Until there is... um, just a pile of dust so that there is not even anything in any way that resembles a human body. And to recognize that these stages of decomposition is what we are going to experience after, that's what our body is going to go through, is another way of being able to um, get a handle on holding ourselves to be permanent, long-lasting, and to be... um, who we actually are. Now, I need to remind you 
at this point that the purpose of doing this is not to get grossed out. The purpose of doing this is to remember that we contemplate death in this kind of a vivid and clear way so that our attention can begin to stabilize in what does not die. That is the point of doing these contemplations. We focus on everything that does die in order that we can become familiarized, acquainted, and accustomed to letting our attention rest in what does not die. So we have to remember, you know, this is not a weekend self-improvement course. This is a radical transformation of the way that we have habitually looked at ourselves and the rest of the world so that there is no more suffering. So that we can uproot all of the illusions and the veils that keep us from seeing things clearly and directly so that we can live with full, joyous, connected lives without suffering in any way whatsoever. That is the point of why this meditation was given. Now, obviously, there are times when some meditation exercises are useful, and there are times when some meditations are absolutely not useful. And so if the contemplation of the body or the contemplation of the death is allowing the mind or supporting the mind to go into spirals of depression or some kind of um, psychological collapse, then that's obviously not a useful practice. So we don't use these exercises no matter what the consequences are. We use these exercises in order to support the mind seeing clearly and opening up into something that is actually supportive. And that's part of the reason why it's helpful to be working with a meditation teacher because then they have an ability to help support and guide what is useful, what's not useful. So what I'd like to do now, let me just read the last refrain. So in this way, she abides contemplating the body as the body internally, or she abides contemplating the body as the body externally, or she abides contemplating the body as the body, both internally and externally, or less. She abides contemplating the body and its arising factors, or she abides contemplating the body in its vanishing factors, or she abides contemplating in the body both its arising and vanishing factors. Or else mindfulness, there is a body, is simply established in her to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that too is how a practitioner abides contemplating the body as a body. We do that in ourselves, with relationship to ourselves, and we do that outside when we are seeing other people in relationship with others. And as we are able more and more to sustain this understanding, then this is what helps supports coming into right view about what it is to be a person in this world and where our real refuge actually lies. So the Buddha was not interested in setting you up with a kind of belief system 
what it was interested in doing was giving you a set of tools that you could directly experience for yourself, something that allowed you to shift your frame of reference from the normal habitual way of living and doing and being and responding to a way that was not confused or not tied up with the same kind of forces of fear and greed and aversion that we normally are operating with. And that's part of the reason why the sutta is so incredibly powerful, because it cuts to the chase, you know, absolutely cuts to the chase. So what I'd like to do now is to do a brief um, guided meditation using the breath, and then we can have a break afterwards and a discussion. So the Buddha's instructions to sit erect, I understand to be to have alignment, balance, and relaxation. So in order for there to be alignment, it's very helpful for the hips to be slightly tilted forward. Forward over the sitting bones. And sometimes you need to get more height underneath your hips in order for that to be possible. Allowing the spine to elongate, the neck to elongate, and all of the muscles to relax. Allowing attention to settle on the breath without in any way trying to control or to manipulate it, to receive the breath. And just noticing the in-breath, how long it is. Noticing the out-breath, how long it is. And after a few breaths, the breath begins to shorten. The in-breath is shorter. And the out-breath is shorter. Feeling the breath in the whole body. Feeling the whole body energized with the in-breath. Feeling the whole body relax with the out-breath. 
as the whole body begins to settle and relax, noticing how the breath allows the mind to settle and calm. Staying with the breath, focused on the breath, attentive to the breath, using the breath to calm the mind. Using the breath to calm the mind, we can let go of our ideas, our thoughts. What needs to happen tomorrow? Who we think we are? As we let go, we can bring attention to what's left when we let go.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.